Chapter 3 of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Unicorns by James Hunnaker. Chapter 3. Remy de Gourmont. His ideas. The color of his mind. Je de sais que je pense. Remy de Gourmont. Section 1. Those were days marked by a white stone when arrived in the familiar yellow cover a new book, with card enclosed from Remy de Gourmont, 71 Rue des Saints-Pères, Paris. Sometimes I received as many as two in a year, but they always found me eager and grateful, did those precious little volumes bearing the imprint of the Mercure de France, with whose history the name of de Gourmont is so happily linked. And there were postcards, too in his delicate handwriting on which were traced sense and sentiment. Yes, this man of genius possessed sentiment, but abhorred sentimentality. His personal charm transpired in a friendly salutation hastily penciled. He played exquisitely upon his intellectual instrument, and knew the value of time and space. So his postcards are souvenirs of his courtesy, and it was through one which unexpectedly fell from the sky in 1897, I began my friendship with this distinguished French critic. His sudden death in 1915 at Paris, he was born in 1858, caused by apoplexy, was the heroic ending of a man of letters. Like Flaubert, he was stricken while at his desk. I can conceive no more fitting end for a valiant soldier of literature. He was a moral hero, and the victim of his prolonged technical heroism. De Gourmont was incomparable. Thought, not action, was his chosen sphere. But ranging up and down the vague and vast territory of ideas, he encountered countless cerebral adventures, the most dangerous of all. An aristocrat born, he was nevertheless a convinced democrat. The latch was always lifted on the front door of his ivory tower. He did live in a certain sense a cloistered existence, a Benedictine of arts and letters, but he was not, as has been said, a sour hermit nursing morose fancies in solitude. De Gourmont, true pagan, enjoyed the gifts the gods provide, and had, despite the dualism of his nature, an epicurean soul, but of a complexity. He never sympathized with the disproportionate fuss raised by the metaphysicians about instinct and intelligence, yet his own magnificent cerebral apparatus was a battlefield over which swept the opposing hosts of instinct and intelligence, and in a half-hundred volumes the history of this conflict is faithfully set down. As personal as Maurice Barres, without his egotism, as subtle as Anatole France, Degremont saw life steadier and broader than either of these two contemporaries. He was the one who said, vast things simply. He was the profoundest philosopher of the three, and never, after his beginnings, exhibited a trace of the dilettante life soon became something more than a mere spectacle for him. He was a meliorist in theory and practice, though he asserted that Christianity, an oriental-born religion, has not become spiritually acclimated among Occidental peoples. But he missed its consoling function. Religion, the poetry of the poor, never had for him the prime significance that it had for William James, a legend, vague, vast, and delicious. Old frontiers have disappeared in science and art and literature. We have Matterlink, a poet writing of bees, Poincaré, a mathematician, opening our eyes to the mystic gulfs of space, solid matters resolved into mist, 
and the law of gravitation questioned. The New Horizons beckon ardent youth bent on conquering the secrets of life, and there are more false beacon lights than true. But if this is an age of specialists, a man occasionally emerges who contradicts the formula. Degarmont was at base a poet, also a dramatist, novelist, raconteur, man of science, critic, moralist of erudition, and lastly, a philosopher. Both formidable and bewildering were his accomplishments. He is a poet in his hieroglyphs, Orison's Mauvaise, Les Livres de Tennis, Les Sans de Paradis, Simone, Divertissement, his last appearance in singing robes, in 1914. He is a raconteur and such tales in Histories Magiques, Prose Moroses, Les Pelerines du Silence, D'une Pays Lontane, Colors, a novelist in Merlette, his first book, 16, Les Fantômes, Les Chevaux d'Idéomédée, Le Sange d'une Femme, Une Nuit au Luxembourg, Un Corps Virginal, dramatist in Théodate, Finissa, Le Voiroy, Lilith. As master critic of the aesthetics of the French language, his supremacy is indisputable. It is hardly necessary to refer here to Les Livres des Masques, in two volumes, the five volumes of Promenades Littéraires, the three of Promenades Philosophiques. As moralist, he has signed such works as Les Délismes, La Culture des Idées, Les Chamans des Folors. Historian and humanist, he has given us Les Latin Mystiques. Grammarian and philologist, he displays his learning in Les Problèmes des Styles and An Essite de la Langue Française. And incidentally, Flays, an unhappy pedagogue, who proposed to impart the secret of style in twenty lessons. He edited many classics of French literature. His chief contribution to science, apart from his botanical and entomological researches, is Physique de l'Amour, in which he reveals himself as a patient, thorough observer in an almost new country. And what shall we say to his incursions into the actual, into the field of politics, sociology, and hourly happenings of Paris life, his epilogues in three volumes, Dialogues des Amateurs, the collected pages from his monthly contributions to Mercure de France. Nothing human was alien to him, nor inhuman, for he rejected as quite meaningless the latter vocable, as he rejected such clichés as organic and inorganic. Years before we heard of a pluralistic universe, Degremont was a pragmatist, though an idealist in his conception of the world as a personal picture. Intensely interested in ideas, as he was in words, he might have fulfilled Lord Acton's wish that someone would write a history of ideas. At the time of his death, the French thinker was composing a work entitled Le Physique des Moors, in which he contemplated a demonstration of his law of intellectual constancy. A spiritual cosmopolitan, he was, like most Frenchmen, an ardent patriot, the little squabble in the early 80s over a skit of his, Les Joujoux, Patriotism, in 1883, cost him his post at the National Library in Paris. As a philosopher, he deprecated war. As a man, though too old to fight, he urged his countrymen to victory, as may be noted in his last book, Pedant Larange, in 1916. But the philosopher persists in such a sorrowful sentence as, in the tragedy of man, pieces but an entracte. To show his mental balance at a time when literary men, 
artists, and even philosophers indulged in unseemly abuse, we read in Jugement his calm admission that the war has not destroyed for him the intellectual values of Goethe, Schopenhauer, or Nietzsche. He owes much to their thought, as they owed much to French thought. Goethe has said as much. And, of Voltaire and Chamfort, Schopenhauer was a disciple. Without being a practical musician, Degremont was a lover of Beethoven and Wagner. He paid his compliments to Romain Royand, whose style, both chalky and mucilaginous, he dislikes in that overrated and spun-out series Jean Christophe. Another little volume, La Belgique Littéraire, was published in 1915, which, while it contains nothing particularly new about Georges Rodenbach, Emile Verharen, von Lerberg, Camille Lemonnier, and Maurice Letternick, is excellent reading. The French critic was also editor of the Revue des Idées, and, judging from the bibliography compiled by Pierre de Crillon as long ago as 1903, he was a collaborator of numerous magazines. He wrote on Emerson, English Humor, or Thomas Akempis, with the same facility as he dissected the mystic Latin writers of the early centuries after Christ. Indeed, such versatility was viewed askance by the plodding crowd of college professors, his general adversaries. But his erudition could not be challenged. Only two other men matched his scholarship, Anatole France and the late Marcel Schwab. And we have only skimmed the surface of his accomplishments. Remé de Grammont is the admirable Crichton of French letters. Section 2. Prodigious incoherence might be reasonably expected from this diversity of interests, yet the result is quite the reverse. The artist in this complicated man banished confusion. He has told us that, because of the diversity of his aptitudes, man is distinguished from his fellow animals, and the variety in his labors is proof positive of his superiority to such fellow critics as the mentally constipated Brunetier, the impressionistic Anatole France, the agile and graceful Lemartre, and the pedantic Philistine Foger. But if Degremont always attains clarity with no loss of depth, he sometimes mixes his genres, that is, the poet peeps out in his reports of the psychic life of insects, as the philosopher lords it over the pages of his fiction. A mystic betimes, he is a crystal-clear thinker, and consider the Catholicity evinced in Le Livre de Mosques. He wrote of such widely diverging talents as Maeterlinck, Mellarmé, Viers de Lys la Dame, and Paul Adam, of Henri de Regnier and Jules Reynard, of Hoysman and Jules Leforge, the mysticism of Francis Pointevin's style, and the imagery of St. Paul Aru he defined. And he displays an understanding of the first symbolist poet, Arthur Rimbaud, while disliking the personality of that abnormal youth. But why recite this litany of new talent literally made visible and vocal by our critic? It is a pleasure to record the fact that most of his swans remained swans and did not degenerate into tame geese. In this book he shows himself a profound psychologist. Insatiably curious, he yet contrived to drive his chimeras in double harness and safely. His best fiction is Sixteen and Unui au Luxembourg, if fiction they may be called. Never will their author be registered among bestsellers. Sixteen deals with the adventures of a masculine brain. Ideas are the hero. In Un Cour Virginal, we touch earth, 
fleshly and spiritually. This story shocked its readers. It may be considered as a sequel to Physique de l'Amour. It shows mankind as a gigantic insect, indulging in the same apparently blind pursuit of sex sensation as a beetle, and also shows us the female of our species, endowed with less capacity for modesty than the lady mole, the most chaste of all animals. Disconcerting, too, is the psychology of the heroine's virginal soul. Not, however, cynical. Cynicism is the irony of vice, and Degourmand is never cynical, but a master of irony. Une nuit au Luxembourg has been done into English. It handles with delicacy and frankness themes that in the hands of a lesser artist would be banished as brutal and blasphemous. The author knows that all our felicity is founded on a compromise between the dream and reality, and for that reason, while he signals the illusion, he never mocks it. He is too much an idealist. In the elaborately carved cups of his tales, foaming over with exquisite perfumes and nectar, there lurks the bitter drop of truth. He could never have said, with Proton, that woman is the desolation of the just. For him woman is often an obsession. Yet, captain of his instincts, he sees her justly. He is not subdued by sex. With a gesture he destroys the sentimental scaffolding of the sensualist and marches on to new intellectual conquests. In Lilith, an Adamic morality, he reveals his Talmudic lore. The first wife of our common ancestor is a beautiful hell-hag, the accomplice of Satan in the corruption of the human race. Thus, medieval play is epical in its Rebelaisian plainness of speech. Perhaps the Manichaean in Degourmont fabricated its revolting images. He had traversed the Baudelarian steps of blasphemy and black pessimism. Baudelaire, a poet who was a great critic. Odi profanum vulgus was Degourmont's motto, but his soul was responsive to so many contacts that he emerged, as Barres emerged, a citizen of the world. Anarchy as a working philosophy did not long content him, though he never relinquished his detached attitude of proud individualism. He saw through the sentimental equality of J. J. Rousseau. Rousseau it was, who said that thinking man was a depraved animal. Perhaps he was not far from the truth. Man is an effective animal, more interested in the immediate testimony of his senses than in his intellectual processes. His metaphysics may be but the reverberation of his sensations on the shore of his subliminal self, the echo of the sounding shell he calls his soul. And our critic had his scientific studies to console him for the inevitable sterility of soul that follows egoism and a barren debauch of the sensations. He did not tarry long in the valley of excess. His artistic sensibility was his savior. Without being a dogmatist, Degromont was an antagonist of absolutism a determinist, which may be dogmatism a rebours. A relativist, he holds that mankind is not a specially favored species of the animal scale. Thought is only an accident, possibly the result of rich nutrition. An automaton, man has no free will, but it is better for him to imagine that he has. It is a sounder working hypothesis for the average human. The universe had no beginning, it will have no end. There is no first link or last in the chain of causality. Everything must submit to the law of causality. To explain a blade of grass, we must dismount the stars. Nevertheless, Degourmont, no more than Renan, had the mania of certitude. Humbly, he interrogates the Sphinx. 
there are no isolated phenomena in time or space the mass of matter is eternal man is an animal submitting to the same laws that govern crystals or brutes he is the expression of matter in physique and chemistry repetition is the law of life thought is a physiological product intelligence the secretion of matter and is amenable to the law of causality this sounds like taine's famous definition of virtue and vice and who shall deny it all in the psychochemical laboratories it is not the rigid old-fashioned materialism but a return to the more plastic theories of lamarck and the transformism of the dutch botanist hugo de Vry. for de gourmont the darwinian notion that man is at the topmost notch of creation is as antique and absurd as most cosmogenies indeed it is the asiatic egocentric idea of creation jacob's ladder repainted in darwinian symbols voila l'ennemi said de gourmont and put on his controversial armor what blows what sudden deadly attacks were his quinton has demonstrated to the satisfaction of many scientists that bird life came later on our globe than the primates from whom we stem the law of thermal constancy proves it by the interior temperature of birds man preceded the carnivorous and ruminating animals of whom the body temperature is lower than that of birds the ants and bees and beavers are not a whit more automatic than mankind automatism says ribot is the rule thought is not free wrote william james when to it an affirmation is added then it is but the affirmation of a preference man asserts degromont is infinite in his mimicry his superiority is in the immense diversity of his abilities he welcomed jules de gautier and his theory of bovarism of the vital lie because of which we pretend to be what we are not that way spells security if not progress the idea of progress is another necessary illusion for it provokes a multiplicity of activities our so-called free will is not but the faculty of making a decision determined by a great and varied number of motives as for morality it is the outcome of tribal taboos the insect and animal world shows deepest dyed immorality revolting cruelty and sex perversity rabbits and earthworms through no fault of their own suffer from horrible maladies from all of which our critic deduces his law of intellectual constancy the human brain since prehistoric times has been neither diminished nor augmented it has remained like a sponge which can be dry or saturated but still remains itself it is a constant in a favorable environment it is enriched the greatest moment in the history of the human family was the discovery of fire by an anthropoid of genius prometheus then should be our god without him we should have remained more or less simian and probably of arboreal habits section three a synthetic brain is degourmont's a sower of doubts though not a no-sayer to the universe he delights in challenging accepted truths of all our modern thinkers a master of vue d'essence he smiles at the pretensions usually a mask for poverty of ideas of so-called general ideas he dissociates such conventional grouping of ideas as glory justice decadence the shining ribs of disillusion shine through his psychology a psychology of nuance and finesse disillusioning reflections these not to be put in any philosophical pigeonhole he is as far removed from the eclecticism of victor cosson as from the verbal jugglery and metaphysical murmurings of henri bergson the world is his dream but it is a tangible dream charged with meaning order logic and truest reality is thought 
action spoils. Goethe said, thought expands, action narrows. Our abstract ideas are metaphysical idols, says Jules de Gaultier. The image of the concrete is de Gramont's touchstone. Théophile Gautier declared that he was the man for whom the visible world existed. He misjudged his capacity for apprehending reality. The human brain, excellent instrument in a priori combinations, is inept at perceiving realities. The sultan of the epithet, as de Gramont nicknamed Le Bon was not the emperor of thought, according to Henry James, and for him it was a romantic fiction spun in the rich web of his fancy. A vaster, grayer world is adumbrated in the books of de Gramont. He never allowed symbolism to deform his representation of sober, everyday life. He pictured the future domain of art and ideas as a fair and shining landscape, no longer a series of little gardens with high walls. A hater of formulas, sex, schools, he teaches the capital crime of the artist, the writer, the thinker, is conformity. Yet how serenely this critic swims in classic currents. The artist's work should reflect his personality, a magnified reflection. He must create his own aesthetic. There are no schools, only individuals. And of consistency, he might have said that it is oftener a mule than a jewel. Skeptical in all matters, though never the fascinated sophist that is Anatole France, Degremont criticized the 36 dramatic situations, reducing the number to four. Man as center in relation to himself, in relation to other men, in relation to the other sex, in relation to God or nature. His ecclesiastical font may be recognized in Le Chemin des Volors, with its sympathetic exposition of Jesuit doctrine and the acuity of its judgments on Pascal and the Jansenists. The latter section is an illuminating footnote to the history of Port Royal by Saint-Beuve. The younger critic has the supple intellect of the supplest-minded Jesuit. His bias toward the order is unmistakable. There are few books I reread with more pleasure than this path of velvet. Certain passages in it are as silky and sonorous as the sound of Eugène Yassé's violin. The color of de Gourmand's mind is stained by his artistic sensibility. A maker of images, his vocabulary is astounding. As befits both a poet and a philologist, one avid of beautiful words has variety. The temper of his mind is tolerant, a quality which has informed the finer intellects of France since Montaigne. His literary equipment is unusual, a style as brilliant, sinuous, and personal as his thought, flexible or massive, continent or colored. He discourses at ease in all the gamuts and modes, major, minor, and mixed. A swift, weighty style, the style of a Latinist, a classic and not a romantic style. His formal sense is admirable. The tenderness of Anatole France is absent, except in his verse, which is less spontaneous than volitional. A pioneer in new aesthetic pleasures, de Gramont is a poet for poets. He has virtuosity, though the gift of tears, nature, possibly jealous because of her prodigality, has denied him. But in the curves of his overarching intellect there may be found wit, gaiety, humor, the Gallic attributes, allied with poetic fancy, profundity of thought, and a many-sided comprehension of life, art, and letters. He is, in the best tradition of French criticism, only more versatile than either Saint-Beuve or Taine, as versatile as Dr. Brandis or Arthur Simmons, and that is saying much. With Anatole France he could have exclaimed, The longer I contemplate human life, the more I believe that we must give it, for witnesses and judges, irony, 
and pity. End of chapter 3. Recording by Olivia.